Please open in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. And I want to, uh, before I read there, I want to tell you a story. How many are familiar with Pilgrim's Progress? The story of Pilgrim's Progress. How many are familiar with the book Dangerous Journey? Good, okay. Dangerous Journey is, is a, a retelling of Pilgrim's Progress. I think, I don't think, it is absolutely my all-time favorite kids book and now that our kids are all old I look forward to grandchildren to be able to read that with together it's just a short and abridged retelling of Pilgrim's Progress with great illustrations and I want to just I want to dip into the 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 dangerous journey story today the the story of of Pilgrim's Progress the story of dangerous journey is about a traveler named Christian a a, a man who's on his way to the celestial city a man who's on his way to heaven and in this particular uh, place where we're going to dip into the story. Christian has a friend who's with him. His friend is, is named Hopeful. And so these two pilgrims are on the king's highway on the way to the celestial city. But at one point, they take a shortcut. The shortcut, as sometimes happens, didn't work out so well. They ended up captured by giant despair and they were thrown into this stinking, dark dungeon of this place called Doubting Castle. Here, Christian and Hopeful were hungry. They were thirsty. They were lonely. They were hurting from the, the, the beatings they'd received from the giant. And the giant, seeking to, in fulfillment of his name, bring greater despair and discouragement to them, he takes them to see the remains of all the other pilgrims and journey Uh, wayfarers that that he's dispatched along the way. Here's where we pick up the story with the giant showing them this great pile of bones. And here's what he says. These, said the giant, pointing to the skeletons, were pilgrims just like you who trespassed on my grounds. When I thought fit, I tore them in pieces as within 10 days I will do to you. Back in their dungeon, Christian nearly swooned away. For now, through lack of food and by reason of his bruises, he could hardly breathe. But Hopeful again encouraged him. And then, as often happens in dreams when things are desperate, Christian suddenly remembered. I have in my pocket, he said, an old key called promise. It might just fit the lock. Try it, said Hopeful, hopefully. Christian was trying the door with his key, but the lock was stuck and he was so weak he had to really work at it. But at last, the key began to turn. There was a creaking and a groaning as the door swung open and in came the light of dawn. What's that noise, said the giant, waking with a start. Christian and Hopeful had run through the door only to be confronted by a new obstacle, a heavy iron gate. Try the key again, said Hopeful. Christian tried it, and it worked. Then the giant was upon them. Oh, nothing can save us now, cried Christian. All is lost. But no sooner had the giant come into the light of the sun than he had another of his fits. His limbs failed him, and his legs gave way. Christian and Hopeful were quickly out of the castle grounds and out of the giant's jurisdiction. 
at the place where they had gone astray, they now put up a notice. Over this stile is the way to Doubting Castle. All trespassers will be destroyed. Take warning. And that done, they continued in safety on the king's highway. Two pilgrims on their way to heaven find themselves in Doubting Castle, suffering under giant despair. You ever spent time in Doubting Castle? You ever met giant despair? Maybe you've even walked in here this morning having had recent encounters with giant despair. Walked in under the, the shadow of Doubting Castle. Have you ever had thoughts like these? How come God seems to be good to others, but not to me? Why is it always someone else who gets the job, or the husband, or the obedient kid? Where was God when those bad things were happening to me? I've been asking and asking and asking, why isn't God answering? I trusted God before I got hurt. Why risk doing it again? Or maybe for you, when things get hard, you don't even think about God at all. He just kind of slips out of sight like the sun setting on the horizon. If you're familiar with thoughts like these, and I am, then you know something about Doubting Castle. You've met giant despair. This morning, I want to open up the topic of doubt. I'm discovering in my own life that doubt is a neglected and misunderstood topic. Understanding doubt and knowing what to do with it will help us all be, avoid becoming permanent residents of Doubting Castle. So this morning, I want to explain very simply why doubt isn't what you think it is and what to do about it. Don't know, you haven't met most of you, but I'm guessing doubt isn't quite what you think it is. And I want to also help you not only understand what it truly is, but then what to do about it. And for that, we need to turn to God's Word. So please look at Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he, that's Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Let's pray.
Oh God, our Father, we thank you this morning that you are there and you're not silent. You are the speaking God. You have made your thoughts, your words known to us. Thank you for preserving these words in Luke chapter 7 for us. Thank you that these are not empty words. These are not lifeless words. These are living words. And I pray now for the empowering work of the Holy Spirit that you would open our eyes, that we might see wonderful things in these words, that we might see Christ in these words. I pray that your word would strengthen these disciples. I pray that your word would increase in this church. I pray that your word would increase in this community. I pray that your word would prevail over doubt, that your word would prevail greatly in this community. And I pray that you would bless and multiply and increase the glory of your Son in this church and to many who in this moment neither know nor worship Him. In His name I pray. Amen. What happened in this passage? Here's the setting. John the Baptist has been thrown in prison. That's inferred in this uh, version of the story. And Luke, if you go back and read the parallel account in Matthew, you can see that stated explicitly. And that's why John the Baptist had to send messengers to Jesus. He had a question and he couldn't come directly to Jesus because he was stuck in Herod's prison. And so John sends these messengers with just a simple question. It's a very short message. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Simple question. And at one level, not a surprising question. As Jesus was on the scene, lots of people had questions about Jesus. Lots of people didn't know who he was. In fact, at one point, Jesus turned to his disciples and he asked them, who do people say that I am? And you remember, there were all kinds of different answers being offered to that. And so John is asking this question, the same question that's on the lips of lots of people. But this isn't just anyone asking the question. This is John. This is John the Baptist. This is John whose father was visited by the angel Gabriel to announce John's birth. This is John who was to prepare the way for the Lord. That was his mission in life. God-given mission. This is John who wasn't filled with the Spirit at conversion. This is John who was filled with the Spirit from before he was born. Unprecedented. In salvation history, John was filled with the Spirit while he was still in his mother's womb. This is John who, when Jesus came on the scene, publicly announced, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He knew who Jesus was. This is John who baptized Jesus and then saw the Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove and then heard the voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son. John was there for those events. John was the messenger, the proclaimer of the Lord. John was the one who identified Jesus publicly as the Lamb of God. And now he sends messengers to Jesus saying, are you the one? 
How's this happen? What has happened here? John's in prison, and it appears that John has doubted. Are you the one who's to come? Or should we look for another? Why did he doubt? What happened in his soul, stuck in that filthy, dingy prison? Was it just the circumstances? I've never been in jail. I know they're not very pleasant places. And I can't imagine what a first century imprisonment by Herod would have been like. Was it the loneliness? Was he, had he been beaten? Was he like Christian and hopeful? Was he hurting and fell into doubt through that? Or, or was it that Jesus didn't meet his expectations? For you remember, John said, Jesus is the one who's coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That means Jesus is coming to purify. Jesus is coming to judge. Jesus is coming to set things right. Injustice is going to be banished. Righteousness is going to be exalted. Jesus is going to take care of those things when he comes. And Jesus hadn't delivered on those expectations yet. Where's the revolution? Was he disappointed? Was he disillusioned? Was he discouraged? I'm not sure what exactly went on in John's soul. But it sure looks to me like in Herod's prison, he ended up in Doubting Castle. But here's the part of this passage I love. Look at how Jesus responds to his friend and his follower who's fallen into doubt. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? Before I show you what Jesus says and does, I want you to know what he doesn't he doesn't rebuke him you slacker you doubter how dare you doubt stop it he doesn't say anything like that look what he does he lets his messengers observe Jesus healing delivering giving sight giving hearing preaching good news and then he says Go tell John what you've seen and heard. Blind are receiving sight, lame walking, leopards being cleansed, deaf hearing, dead raised up, poor having good news preached, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Jesus says, in effect, John, look at me. You get it? See what Jesus is doing? Hey, messengers, go back and tell John to look at me once more. He encourages a doubting follower with a gentle, patient, Christ-exalting, Christ-centered response. Tell John, remind him who I am. And these words that Jesus uses, these were the very words that he had read back in the synagogue, back in Luke chapter 4, as he rose and read from the scroll of Isaiah 61, Jesus is reminding these messengers that he comes in fulfillment of the promises of God. He is the Messiah. And so John is going to receive from Jesus that key called promise. That Jesus fulfills All the promises, all the promises of God find their yes 
and amen in Christ, including the promises of Isaiah 61. John may not get out of Herod's prison, but Jesus hands him the key to get him out of Doubting Castle. Oh, what a Savior. What a wonderful counselor. Follow this model when you need to help someone who's in Doubting Castle. But let's talk for a minute about doubt. John doubted. What is doubt? What does God think about doubt? Where does doubt fit on the moral spectrum? Why do you doubt? When do you doubt? What are the causes of doubt in your life? What is doubt? I looked my, the uh, dictionary definition up in the Oxford English Dictionary and it said that doubt is a state of uncertainty about the truth of something. It's the condition of being uncertain. I'll give you an example. Growing up, we lived in a, uh, an old house and uh, it was a, a three-story house, two stories with really an attic. And I got to live in the attic, which was really cool because I didn't just get my own room. I had my own whole floor all to myself. And it was really cool almost all the time except bedtime. Because I'm, you know, eight, nine years old and I'm living in an attic that's infested by monsters. And so every night I have to do this monster clearing ritual where I have to turn on all the lights and look under the bed and look in all the dark corners and check in the closet and look under the clothes and make sure that this is a monster-free zone because if the monsters come out, there's nobody to help me. I'm all by myself. And so I go through the routine, turn on the lights, check it all out. I have to be certain there's no monsters. And so I, I become certain there's no monsters. And then there's that scary moment, that critical moment, you turn out the light, get in bed, and inevitably, old house, the creak, the floor squeak, a little bit of wind. We had this tree that had branches that touched the roof that's about right next to my face. And the, oh man, the monsters are coming out. I, I was certain they're not there, but, but every second that goes by, my certainty decreases and I fall into this condition of being uncertain. <laughs> I think there's monsters in here. What do I do? So I just hide myself under the covers. And, and I move from being certain there's no monsters to being uncertain about the monsters. And then I end up certain they're there and I'm toast. This is going to be the last. My parents are going to come up there and they're going to find me. It's going to be over. I'll be gone. That's how doubt works. Os Guinness has written a wonderful book called God in the Dark. It's available you know, back at your uh, uh, book table. And here's a quote from him. He says, to believe is to be in one mind. To believe is to be in one mind about trusting someone or something as true. To disbelieve is to be in one mind about rejecting them. You get that? To believe is to be in one mind. This thing is true. This person is true. To disbelieve is to be in one mind. It's, no, this person is not true. This thing is not true. To doubt is to waver in between the two. That's how doubt works. It's the condition of being uncertain. To doubt is to waver between the two, to believe and disbelieve at once, and so to be in 
two minds. That's very important that you understand that about doubt. It's to believe and disbelieve at the same time. There's some belief and there's some unbelief. There's some faith and there's some un, un, unbelief there. And so they're, they're, they're mixed together. It's wavering between these two poles of certainty. Faith is having one mind about God. Unbelief is having one mind about God. But doubt, it just slides in between the two. It has two minds. It's a divided heart. It's a double-minded person. Faith closes on Christ. Doubt wants to keep options open. But what I want you to get out of this is the doubt is not the same as unbelief. Faith is one mind. Unbelief is one mind in a different place. But doubt and unbelief are different. If you've, if you've been like me, you may have assumed that doubt is the opposite of faith. Not true. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. What's the opposite of faith? Unfaith. Unbelief. Doubt and unbelief are different. If you understand that, you've just learned an important key to be able to get out of Doubting Castle. Doubt is dangerous. Doubt is serious. There are some people today that almost revel in doubt and make it a virtue. It's not a virtue. It's dangerous. It's serious. But it isn't unbelief. Guinness writes, continued doubt loosens the believer's hold on the resources and privileges of faith and can be the prelude to the disasters of unbelief. But look what he says. He says it can be the prelude to the disasters of unbelief. It doesn't have to be. The Christian, if you're a believer, if you're a disciple of Jesus this morning, you came to Christ. How did you come? Did you come by your Big giving? Did you come by your keeping the Ten Commandments? No, you came by faith. You came by laying hold of Christ by faith. We've been justified by faith. You know what doubt is? Doubt is faith with the flu. Or if it's more serious, doubt is faith with cancer. But doubt reveals that faith is still present. If faith was no longer present, there'd be no doubt There'd be unbelief. There'd be unfaith. Listen carefully to some of the things Jesus says. Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? He doesn't say, oh, you of no faith. Oh, you of little faith. Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. There's a rebuke in that. There's also an encouragement in that. Faith is still there. At least there's a little faith. There's something to work with. Doubt is serious, but it doesn't have to be terminal. There's a way out of Doubting Castle. How? How do we get out? How do we move from doubt back to faith? Well, the first thing I'd say is, don't be surprised by doubt. Don't be surprised by it. Listen, if John the Baptist doubted, Why are you surprised if you doubt or your spouse doubts or your kid doubts or somebody in your care group doubts? Elijah doubted. He ran the great prophet Elijah ran from Jezebel because he doubted. 
Peter, the apostle, the great apostle, he doubted and he sank into the water. Instead of walking on the water, he doubted after Pentecost, after receiving the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and he pulled back from eating with the Gentiles. And Paul had to respond to that publicly. We stand in a long line of doubters. It's just part of life in the new covenant awaiting the fulfillment of heaven. Some people spend lots of time in Doubting Castle. Some people check in and check out quickly. But this side of heaven, I think we all struggle with doubt in some way, at some time. And it's very important to learn how to diagnose doubt. So what I want to encourage you this morning with is I want to try to encourage you to understand and study if you doubt, and when you doubt, what's happening? What's the source of it? What triggered it? Where is it coming from? Doubt is tricky, can be complicated, it's kind of sneaky. And I think one of the biggest complicating factors of doubt is this. When you doubt, it's often then compounded by guilt. Maybe you've had this experience. You find yourself struggling. And then you think, I'm a Christian. How could I be doing this? Wrong, wrong, wrong. And you just begin to admonish yourself and castigate yourself for your doubts. And so on, the doubt is a problem. And then you heap the problem of guilt on top of that doubt. And, and then it becomes much more complicated to try to figure out what's wrong and get out of that. It's important to learn how these things work in our souls so that we can spend less time in Doubting Castle and more time on the King's Highway. And this, for me, is a, like a daily struggle. I'll give you an example from this morning. We're staying in this nice hotel. Need to get our boarding passes to go home uh, this afternoon. They have this nice business center. I go in there and um, I just need to print out the boarding passes. Computer's a little slow. Okay, it's no problem. Just waiting for it to get going and, and find my website and all that. I get to the website and I need my frequent flyer number in order to be able to check in. Problem. I, I can't remember my frequent flyer number. I don't have my frequent flyer number. It was on my boarding pass, but I threw it away, and they so efficiently took the trash out yesterday. It's gone. Okay, what do I do? I know. I'll have them send me my frequent flyer number to my email. So I send me the nu- send me the number. They send it to my Gmail account. I go to load the Gmail. It won't load. The, the parental controls are blocking Gmail. So I walk upstairs. The picture of joy and happiness... No, I walk upstairs irritated. I walk in the room irritated. Why? What's going on in my soul? I th- two things. Pride. This shouldn't happen to me. This is me. Hey, how, I should live in a trouble-free world. I shouldn't have to be bothered. Slow computers and parental controls that block my Gmail account. I sh- That's one thing. But you know what? There's doubt in there too. You know what the doubt's doing right then? God is not wise to have left me in this broken, trouble-filled world. I don't mind if other people have trouble, but he would be wise to preserve me from that. That's, those aren't conscious thoughts. 
But that's what's going, where's that irritation coming from? Is that the fruit of the Holy Spirit? No, that's the result of that pride and that doubt working in my soul. And I've begun to move from faith, God is good, great, and wise. I am sliding and becoming of two minds about God. And that took about five minutes on the morning when I'm getting ready to preach about doubt. How pathetic is that? Well, that's where I live. That's how life works in my soul. And I don't know you, but I would guess, because I understand how human nature is, and I think I understand some of what the Scripture has to say about these things, I would guess a lot of you are probably wired pretty similarly to me. Let me try to offer you a few catch points to diagnose doubt in your life. I'm going to just run through a, a few sources of doubt. These are not original with me. Os Guinness uh, charts these out helpfully in his book. You don't have to memorize these. There'll be no multiple choice tests uh, at the end of, uh, of, of the meeting here. But think of this as kind of a, 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 a workup and just check and see if you get the all clear at the end or maybe there's something that helps you understand something that's going on in your life or somebody that you're trying to help. Where does doubt come from? First is this, doubt comes from forgetting to remember. If you forget to remember, you're set up for doubt. Guinness writes, doubt is conceived at the first moment when thank you is superfluous. Doubt is conceived at the first moment when thank you is superfluous. What does that mean? Think about Israel. God delivers them. They were slaves in Egypt. He delivers them through the Red Sea, through the uh, wilderness, into the promised land. They move into the promised land. They move into homes they didn't build. They harvest crops they didn't plant. They, in, they experience this land flowing with milk and honey. And what do they do? They forget about God. And what do they do? They move into idolatry. They begin to doubt who God is. Why? Because they forgot to remember. They forgot that they were slaves. They forgot that He preserved them. They forgot that He gave them this land. They forgot that they were made to worship Him. And I work the same way. Sometimes when you're stuck in doubt, the way forward is actually backwards first in order to be able to make progress. We need to go back to the cross. We need to go back to remember I was a slave to sin. We need to go back to remember I was dead in my sins. I lived in darkness. I was a sinner and I loved it and I was running towards hell and I did nothing to turn myself around. It was God who intervened in my life. It was God who brought a faithful friend who preached the gospel to me. It was God who sent His Son to die on a cross on my behalf long before I had ever lived. And when He knew that my disposition was going to be towards sin. And when I remember those things, my mind begins to unify. My heart unites around what's true about God. Forgetting to remember can be a source of doubt. A faulty view of God can be a source of doubt. You remember the story in Genesis, Abraham and Sarah have been promised a son, but Sarah's past the years of bearing children and no son has appeared on the scene. And so an angel comes and tells Abraham, hey, a year from now, you're going to have a baby. Sarah overhears it. You know what she does? She laughs. You know why she laughs? It wasn't a laugh of faith. It was a laugh of, yeah, right. 
<laughs> that guy has no idea how old I am. There's no way that's happening. You know why she laughed? You know what the source of her doubt was? She doubted that God could do the miracle of giving an elderly woman a son. She had a faulty view of God and it resulted in doubt that worked itself out through that laughter in that moment. Weak foundations can be a source of doubt. We see this sometimes when kids maybe that have grown up in a community like this, they go off and get their first job. They begin to go to a different school or they move away or go to college and all of a sudden they're confronted with ways of living and ideas that are very different than they've grown up with. And if their foundations aren't strong and firm and they haven't been prepared in their hearts and in their thinking to engage those things as disciples of Christ, doubts can begin to arise in significant ways. What's causing those doubts? It's not the people and the ideas that they're encountering. It's the weak foundations in their souls that are now being exposed by the new situation. A lack of growth. A lack of growth can be the source of doubts. You ever find yourself, maybe you've been a Christian for a while, and you've got this pattern of sin that you're struggling with. Maybe you get angry with your kids, or maybe there's a sexual temptation, a lust that you just can't seem to... To, to gain mastery over. Maybe there's a laziness and you're just always late for work and whatever it might be. And you find yourself, you've tried, you've prayed, you've memorized scripture and, and, and you fall into it again. And what happens? There can just be this despair, this discouragement, these doubts. Am I ever going to change? Can anything ever Get better than this. Is this all there is? Am I even a Christian? Where is God? Is He even here? That lack of growth can be a significant source of doubts in our lives. Here's another one. Unruly emotions. We're created in God's image, emotional people. That's part of the image of God in our lives. But we're wired differently and we all express emotions differently. And sometimes our emotions can, can erupt and overwhelm what we believe. Times of great emotion can sometimes overwhelm what we know to be true. Experiences of grief or illness. Experiences of persecution as John was experiencing in prison, or injustice. In these moments, here is some outstanding pastoral advice. Guinness says, the doubter's words should be taken seriously, but not literally. The doubter's words should be taken seriously, but not literally. If you're, if you're seeking to care for someone, who's in the midst of a crisis. They've just lost a spouse. They've just witnessed a horrible accident. They've just been through some traumatic experience and their emotions are unruly. Oh, be careful. 
Take their doubts seriously. But don't be a wordsmith with their words. There are times when we say things that we truly don't believe and that exceed and go outside the bounds of what in a right frame of mind we do believe. If you're not sure about where I can say that from Scripture, I would encourage you to read the Psalms and read Job and just see how patient God is with people who are struggling with severe trials and who sometimes say things that clearly lack faith or even aren't accurate about God. I was, I was truly shocked that just a few days ago, I'm reading through my Bible, I'm reading Jeremiah chapter 20, and here's what Jeremiah says. This was Jeremiah's devotions one morning. Oh Lord, you have deceived me. That's in my Bible. Is it? I'd never... You have deceived me and I was deceived. You are stronger than I and you have prevailed. I've become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. That's in your Bible. Why is it in your Bible? Here's why. Because God wants you to know Jeremiah was being persecuted. He was suffering. He'd been sent with a message that virtually nobody was going to believe and respond to. And it was a hard life for him. And God not only didn't reject him when he came to him with these words, God preserved these words so that future doubters could read them and know it's safe to talk to God even when you're really struggling. Even when you're going to say things you're going to later regret. He still welcomes you to come to him. Is he going to adjust Jeremiah's attitude? Is he going to remind him of who he is? Absolutely but he saved these things in his word because he understands our frame. He knows we're doubters. Oh, oh, you have little faith. Why do you doubt? Just see God's compassion and his gentleness. If you're, if you're struggling with doubt, let me encourage you. Doubt reveals faith. All is not lost. There is hope. If you're struggling with doubt, I want to encourage you to pray. Bring your doubts to God. You won't tell Him something He doesn't already know. He knows your thoughts already. If you're struggling with doubt, bring your thoughts to God. Bring your doubts to God. Bring your questions to God. Seek the help of a loved one. Seek the help of a trusted Christian friend who can help you begin to process and sort out where is this coming from? Why are you thinking these things? who can come alongside you and gently begin to help you find the way out. And oh, brothers and sisters, there is a way out. There is a key that will deliver us from Doubting Castle. But if you're helping a pilgrim who's stuck in Doubting Castle today, come gently. This is a bruised reed. Don't break it. Bind it up. Come alongside. Listen. Take your time. Follow Jesus' example. Think about, think about Elijah. He ends up in Doubting Castle. He's performed this great miracle. Fire's fallen from heaven. He's killed all these prophets. And then he runs from this queen Jezebel. What does God do when he falls into Doubting Castle? 
Does he rebuke him for his unbelief, for his doubt, for his fears? No, you know what he does? He gives him the gift of sleep. Here, I'm going to help you take a nap. Do it again. Birds, let's get some food going here for Elijah. The guy's tired, he's hungry. Do you see the compassion of the Father? See how God responds? And then do you know what he does? Sure, he reveals himself. He reminds Elijah of who he is. But that's not the first thing he does. The way out of Doubting Castle is through that key of promise. I love Dangerous Journey and I love that key that opens the gate that gets Christian out. When John the Baptist doubted, Jesus reminded him of the promises that Jesus had come to fulfill. Doubt becomes an opportunity to lay hold of the promises that God has placed in His Word. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. When we've drifted from faith, when we've lost sight of God's greatness and His goodness, God's promises will bring us back to faith. God's promises will get us out of Doubting Castle. God's promises will get us back on the King's Highway. Here's God's Word is full of promises. I would encourage you, as you read God's Word, keep a notebook or a, a, a spreadsheet or something and keep track of the promises one after another that He provides in His Word so that when you fall into Downing Castle and giant despair is hovering over you, you've got some place to go to lay hold of, of a promise. And if you need a promise today, here's just one. Hebrews 7.25, listen to this. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. He's talking about you the believer here. And Christ, Christ is able to save to the uttermost. Do you know what that means? That means there's no circumstance He can't save from and there's no time in which He's not available to save. He can save to the uttermost. There is no moment in your life when Christ is not available to rescue and save and there is no circumstance from which He cannot deliver you. He is able He's able to save to the uttermost. Why? Check this out. He's praying for you right now. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives. The resurrected Christ that we proclaim so gloriously in our songs, He lives right now and your name is on His lips. He lives right now. And He is interceding for you to be rescued from Doubting Castle. He is interceding for you to lay hold of that promise. He is interceding for you to get back to a place of faith and see Him clearly again. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to Him. For He always lives. Never takes a day off. Never takes a sabbatical. Never get his out-of-office reply. Never get a busy signal. He always lives to make intercession for doubting saints who are trying to get to the finish line. That's our Savior. Hallelujah. What a Savior. If you're not a Christian, 
Jesus Christ came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to pay the price, the consequence, the punishment for the sins of people like you and me. He came so that those who are far off from God, those who are of one mind about God, that I don't need Him and I won't serve Him, can be transformed and brought near to know God as Father and come to a place of one mind of faith in God. If you're not a Christian, lay hold of Christ. There's a promise for you. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Count on it. Throw yourself completely on the mercy of Christ and He will take you to be His own. He will rescue you and He will begin that endless intercession for you until you come home to be with Him. We're on a race, on a journey. There's a finish line. Look ahead with me to that final finish line, those final steps. There waits for us there a Savior. Never seen Him. Only by faith. But then, face to face. Let's keep going. Let's press on. Let's finish the race by faith. Let's get there together. Let's reach out and grab some others and see if they won't come with us. Doubt isn't what you think it is. It is an unbelief. It's being of two minds about God. It's serious. But there's hope because faith is still present in doubt. God's promises are the wonderful key for the soul stuck in Doubting Castle to make its escape. Christ has promised He'll never leave you. Christ has promised He'll never forsake you. Christ has promised He's building a room for you in heaven, in His Father's house. Christ has promised He will not lose one single soul entrusted to Him. Oh, lay hold of Christ yet once more. And let us press on together. Let's pray. O oh God, our Father, I pray for these dear saints and for this wonderful church. I pray that you will help each one here lay hold of the keys, of the promises, and the glory of your Son to find their way out of Doubting Castle if they're in it now, to help a dear one they're trying to assist, find their way out. And I pray for each one here to arm themselves with your good promises so that when they find themselves in Doubting Castle tomorrow or next month or next year, 
they can quickly find their way out. For the glory of Christ, I pray. Amen.